You know, when I first moved back to Manila to set up the bureau for an international news channel some 15 years ago, the very first story we filmed to prepare for launch was on a kamikaze memorial, remembering the Japanese pilots who flew suicide missions against Allied ships during World War II. It was a battle plan the Japanese conceived of and first launched from the Philippines, which they brutally occupied for three years. It struck us all as rather odd and interesting that there would be such a memorial in a place so devastated by the Japanese in World War II. But there it was, in a field off an old airstrip north of Manila, being tended to by a Filipino man who grew up in fear of the Japanese having survived the occupation. It made us wonder, really, about national memory, how things are remembered. It's kind of the same way that a dictator's family, the Marcoses, can return after exile and escape successful litigation. They've won elected seats in government and can even gun for the presidency. That same dictator was also buried in the National Heroes Cemetery, 30 years after he was removed from power by a peaceful people's revolution. Now what do we take from this? That if we wait long enough, history can be revised? Is it a living thing? constantly changing and not set in stone. A few days ago, it came out that in 2014, that same family, the Marcoses, allegedly hired Cambridge Analytica to try to rebrand their dictator's family image before the son could run for national office. Regardless of whether that's true or not, it seems that indeed there has been a rebranding of sorts. And despite what wider public opinion might be outside of the Philippines, within the country itself, there isn't much seeming anger left towards the Marcoses or indeed bad memories of their time and power. So, if people's feelings about an event evolve, does that then change the meaning of the event? This kind of historical questioning or historical revisionism is not just happening in the Philippines, but in many other places around the world. Joining me for this episode of About That is Nick De Inchausti, a social commentator and advocate for history. He heads the Inchausti Foundation, which seeks to preserve the past to inform the present. But is it a futile exercise? <sighs> There's a sustained effort to kind of undermine our, our history, right? And to mm -hmm. kind of recraft it. And it's, and it's an attempt that hasn't stopped. And it's, it's accelerated in the last 30 years. If you want me to get even more pedantic, we even can go back to the American era. There was a substantial effort on the part of the Americans to rewrite our history in a way that showed Americans as liberators, right? That continued through into the Japanese era, where the Japanese presented themselves as liberators of, of Asia and bringing everybody into the greater East Asian uh, prosperity sphere. Yes. And that was what they indoctrinated into us. And then post-World War II, we come into the Marcos era, where there was a concerted effort by Marcos and a lot and a number of very high-profile academics, even today, who are still out there teaching at, at these universities, where they recrafted Philippine history to, I guess, kind of create this uh, momentum where Marcos and Imelda and them are the ultimate expression of Philippine identity and nationalism. And then on the reverse is that they are the font of our nationalism. So our, our identity as a Filipino, our identity as a nation is inextricably tied to them, to those in power. And ultimately, that's not a, uh, a unique occurrence in right. a uh, 
authoritarian regime. I mean, that's basically what they always do. But for whatever reason, we don't recognize that effort. We don't have, whether it's the, the capacity or the historical training or the, or really the, the public consciousness to look and see that as it's happening. It's not like a lot of those cronies and, and those politically empowered allies or even the Marcuses went away. They've been, through various means, trying to present an alternate stream of history, or I guess a propaganda version of history, which is that, you know, kind of bring down a national struggle for independence, for freedom, for identity, and reduce it to very small terms, which, which they've become successful with, which is that it's, oh, it was just a fight between Marcos and the Aquinos. Yes. And then it's a fight now between oligarchs and Duterte. And it's a fight between Marcos and, and the Yellows, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Yes. And they've effectively, very effectively, recrafted uh, a national narrative in those terms. Why do you so, think that's been relatively easy for them to do then? You know, there's this ongoing theory that our failing is that we don't bring it down to a moral and ethical imperative when it comes to how we teach and present our history and other things like civic values yes. that are collaborative and community-based. We didn't impart that. If we even present history as anything more than just dates and names, because ultimately, you know, history, this is where I also differ with some historians, is that I, I actually think history is propaganda, and that's how we have to look mm -hmm. at it. Now, now it's just a matter of whether it's, it's a positive form of propaganda or a negative yeah. form of propaganda, because ultimately history is just a narrative, it's a story. And and yes, you know, good history is based on frameworks. It's based on rigorous analysis of primary and secondary sources and that, that type of, of scientific, actually the scientific uh, approach. But ultimately, you're creating a story, you're creating a narrative, and you're also imparting something as part of that story. And good historians, great historians know that. No, because as you said, if you know, if you look at history as propaganda, then that opens it up to revisionism. Because if the story is always told by the victor, then it's just a matter of if somebody else wins, then the history can be rewritten. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately it. History is a process of revision. The study of history is a process of revision. It is a process of constantly going back and literally attacking the, the concepts of history formation of our previous generation. It has to constantly be revised within new frameworks, new understandings, new access to, to data and archives, right? So then going by that argument, somebody, the, for example, the Marcuses can come in and say, well, then it's our turn to revise the way we've been portrayed. Yeah, well, ultimately, history is also uh, a discipline of verification and, mm -hmm. and debate argument, right? Mm -hmm. History always has to come back to resources. It's not opinion. That's why right. when you look at it, the lowest classification of historical documentation, you know, what you base your story on, is actually memoir. You always mm -hmm. disregard memoir. Always, 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 unless you unless you can find collaborating primary sources, primary source documents or something like that. Like, like let's say, for example, a general uh, says, well, you know, I I was the yes. general who came up with this battle plan and, and developed all of this and led my men to victory based on his memoirs, you know, which are written 30 years later. And of course, he's going to be the hero. So you go, OK, sure. Then you go back and you look, OK. Who actually came up with the battle plans? You look at the doc primary source documents. Right. Who came up with the battle plans? Who came? Who was the one issuing the the battlefield orders? You know, because you'll have all those documents. You can find those documents. Oh. And then you go, oh well, this guy was actually the 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 coffee boy. Yeah, it's no different than with Marcos. You know, he said that he was the hero of 
whatever and all these things. And he was the most decorated uh, World War II guerrillero. And then if you go and look at the documents in the U.S. Army archives, it turns out he was actually drummed out and accused of being a collaborator. So their opinion is a personal opinion. You have to look at what does the documentation say. Always, right. always, always. And you mentioned earlier as well, in the revising of their past, and ergo the country's past, it's also showing where, where the Filipinos have taken their identity from or where they feel the Filipinos should right. take their identity from. And we see a repeat of it right now where anyone who says anything against the government is seen to be unpatriotic or not nationalistic. Where then should identity be coming from so that something like this doesn't keep happening? It's almost a cycle. It's on repeat. It is a cycle because, and I guess, because this is playing out in the United States. Uh, This is playing out in Poland, in England. How do you push back against that? How do you respond to that? It's a case of your institutions and your civil society, right? But even then, I don't know if that formula holds true anymore. Maybe it will in a few years as we begin to understand how to truly rein in things like Facebook or, you know, Twitter and YouTube and those types of things. Because without us realizing it, our traditional means of resisting things like racism or arch conservatism or far right or or jingoism Mm -hmm. have actually been undermined without us even realizing it by social media. I know people are going to say, you know, because you kind of get that people go, but social media is not that powerful. It's still the streets and all that stuff. But no, but now the internet has become a way for many people, especially in the West and even here to get their information. And we have a whole generation above us that is trained to instinctively agree with anything that's published. Yeah, I mean, we have a generation below us that are digital natives who are naturally suspicious. We're kind of in between this class. So if you say, what would we do in the past or 20 years ago, it would be traditional media. It would be it would be the news programs. It'd be news radio, NPR in the United States. It'd be BBC in England. Yes. That would be pushing back against people like Nigel Farage or people like Donald right. Trump. Those would be your traditional structures that would push back. But now those structures don't have a foundation to stand on because prime because previously those structures the benefit of those structures was they had a monopoly on the full information for good right. or bad. Is it more difficult then for a society like the Philippines to hold on to an identity with the democratization of information or media? Yes, and I think that's also one of the one of the things if we want to tie it into a something that's now happening with ABS-CBN mm-hmm. is that ABS-CBN, for better or worse, was a, a, a primary way for millions of people to get their daily news. And you've removed that. So you've cut that and you've removed a conduit for them to the outside world, right? So right. where does that leave them in terms of information? Tabloid print uh, magazines or whatever they get from their, from their Facebook free data text mm-hmm. messages, and then the political leaders in their in their uh, community. Where, where do you feel then that people should be taking their identity? There are countries, for example, obviously in Europe, you know, with centuries and centuries of history who have a very clear sense of who they are as a people. Right. And yet you know, in the Philippines, it's, it's, it's been very difficult or challenging. If you look at it, we're a young democracy. And if you mark this historically against where young democracies like us in their similar period of evolution were, I mean, these countries were a mess. 
they had no momentum. They had no historical momentum. They had no historical identity that was formed. You know, the United States almost was reabsorbed by England about 30 years after American Revolution was successful. The process of developing a democratic nation is marked by centuries, not decades. So how do we do it? I, I think at this point, if, you, if I want to look at it selfishly, this is where civil society organizations, you know, even universities, like that we have to start looking towards crafting national narratives, and, and we have to start looking towards the schools and the school books. It is a propaganda effort. It, like I said, being very blunt about it, the creation mm -hmm. of a national entity is an effort of propaganda. I think that's one of our issues we have now. There's all of these competing narratives, but none of them are really organic in nature. Why is it important for a people or a nation to be strong in their identity or to even know what that is? Why is identity important? Too often we kind of define nations by the political aspects of it. But in, in reality, a nation is what Benedict Anderson called an imagined community. It's a group of people who share in the same vision of who they are. Again, I'm going to go back yes. to the Basques. They kind of straddle the line between two countries, right? Yes. And the Basque country is an autonomous community that is part of broader Spain. So you, you're going to say they're not necessarily a country, they're not a nation, but the way that they look at themselves is that they are a nation because yes. they have, Basque have a very defined identity. I think that becomes so much more important now in the sense as our borders were opening before this pandemic, but our borders were opening. The flow of information is getting stronger and you can't stop that. I mean, you can't stop this kind of merging of countries cross-border eco economically. Right? We can't. The way to define yourself has to become more fluid. It has to replace the political definition of what a country is. And that come, becomes national identity. Political definition, that's fluid. That, that changes by the centuries. But the identity of a people doesn't evolve, but it doesn't necessarily disappear. And that's what carries them through. It gives them an anchor. No matter where they are in the world or what's happening around them, it gives them an anchor and a foundation to succeed together. Would you say then that the Filipino is not sure yes. of his identity? Yes, absolutely. That's one area where the U.S. was very successful for a long period of time in that there was all of these different ethnic groups, different identities formed, yes. different expressions were built around this core idea of being an American, which was being part of a melting pot. Right. You know, now you kind of have this, you know, the Trump ascendant. There's now a culture war going on there because the white, their issue was that they defined, for the most part, American as white. And that's a long-term carryover. That's where they have that discontinuity, that disunity in, in theirs. There's been a, a generation, generations of minorities and immigrants who bought into the American idea and defined it for themselves. Right. And merged it with their cultural and historical identities that they brought with them from wherever they came from. And then those evolved into expressions of Americanism. You know, you can say, you can look at us here, the Filipinos, and you can say, you know, how do we, you know, how do we merge all of our disparate identities? And again, going back to our, our, our previous discussions, that the, the moral and ethical uh, imperatives that would define us as a people. That's how we would be able to merge things like, okay, what, what's a papangueño versus uh, an elongo? Right. You know, yes. how do you bring those together? Or somebody from Mindanao or Caga and Oro, how yes. do you bring that into a national expression of Filipino? And you have to remove the political side of it. So basically, it's almost like you have to create a greater sense 
of community, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely. Yeah. That's what you have to do. That's what we have to do. Why do you think it has so far been difficult to do that in the Philippines, in a country like the Philippines? Is it a response to the geographical difficulties, do you think, because it's comprised of islands? Possibly. And I think we also can't overlook the intrusion of the politics into it as well. And and that's when we go back to, to these alternate streams of history, alternate facts. And it has been an ongoing process. It's never stopped. It has become the dominant thread of historical thought in the Philippines, which is, you know, defined for us by those in power. And so then it, it, it going by, by that and the rhythms that we're seeing, looking at all of these, you know, the historical movements throughout history, then people really do never learn in a sense, do they? If you have, you know, you have different sets of people remembering different sets of things. What is the mm-hmm. point then of that greater history of that shared narrative? If everybody's going to take what they will from it. There's a rhythm to history. I guess you could say counter-revolution to revolution to counter-revolution if you want to be more, mm-hmm. if you want to kind of be a little bit more aggressive with the terminology. But ultimately, it is the morality of how we want to live today and how we want to live tomorrow. It's simple as that. It's the same way that in Corregidor, which was mm-hmm. like where the, the last stand before the Americans left and World War II went full throttle in the Philippines. Do you know that to this day, when people go on tours they have mm-hmm. separate tours for japanese tourists and not just because of the language but they're actually told a different story or they okay. tell the story differently yes they tell the story differently they tell that the story means, differently i didn't know that yes now i'm curious is the script that they're giving to them more organic to their learned experiences versus what we get does it resonate more with them especially when you look at world war Two, the war within japan on how to define what they did in, in World War II is still ongoing. And it's, yes. it's, very, it's very much alive in Japan. People will take things from stories. And again, maybe each student or each person you're speaking to is going to take something different away from you. But ultimately, you want to make sure that what you're conveying underlying all of it is actually also imparted in the telling. And the telling of those stories changed depending on who was telling it because they were imparting different lessons in it. Right. But the important that they were imparting a lesson that whether we realize it or not is what we learn. And that's when we go back to the idea of generational identity, passing it on. Everybody's personal experiences will be different, but the hope is that underlying everything, there's an, a positive identity that's still being imparted. Should the Filipinos then hold space for the Marcos version of their history? Absolutely. We should, because we have to interrogate it. You treat them as memoirs. These memoirs mm-hmm. exist. In the process of telling the story, we take that memoir apart and we show that it's a lie. You don't necessarily right. do it in the in context of the text itself, but as a footnote or something, yes, you do have to recognize that there are people who think like that. The more you, you suppress it, the more the louder they get. And the more they try and find avenues like YouTube or Twitter right. or these kind of concerted, coerced activities. And what happens? Nobody's imparting the history of martial law to people. It's not being told. The lessons of martial law are not being expressed. The moral, ethical implications of authoritarianism are being expressed. So then all they're hearing is that from the Marcos is that, oh, it's great. Everything was wonderful. Everything was perfect. And so because there's no real going narrative of martial law, that fringe idea takes root and it grows. And then it becomes a danger to the rest of society.
So it basically, it should be allowed <laughs> to be out there so that everybody can poke holes in it and prove it wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, ultimately, that's the only way to really address those things. The Auschwitz Museum, that's what they do. Their goal is to impart a moral and ethical history of the Holocaust. And they directly address, you know, Holocaust denialism in what they do. And that's the way to do it. Because there's always going to be fringe conspiracies. There's always going to be bad history. And the uses and abuses of history is bad history. And that's what the Marcoses are. They're bad history. That's what the Marcos attempts to revise history. It's, it's bad. There's no other way to put it except that. It's, abuse. it's an abuse of history. So how do you do it? You teach people how it's an abuse of history. And then you present to them what the realities are based on documentation, based on rigorous study based on creating a narrative that actually is compelling. Just to be devil's advocate, especially nowadays, you know, when people say, oh, we've got documentation for this, it's very easy to then go, yes, but that could have been created. It could be ah. false. It's very difficult to trust something nowadays because everybody can, it can be photoshopped. It can be, well, so are we seeing the that's... end? Are we seeing the demise of history here? Well, I, <laughs> you know, a lot of the Marxists will probably be very happy to hear that. No, I, I think that's then tied into the idea that there is a, a, a coordinated attack on objective truth. As a central aspect of civil life, by the far right, by authoritarians, through the internet, through social media. To go back to it, I think that the one way to teach people to understand what objective truth is, is actually through the study of history. Now, that doesn't mean you, you turn everybody into historians. But you teach people the frameworks for evaluating what's being presented to them. Critical thought, logic, you know, these types of things that we don't necessarily have here in our education and was lost in the United States. There is a lot of research out there that says that this rise of the attack on objective facts is part and parcel with the move away from teaching of critical frameworks for analysis and moving more towards, okay, everybody's educated so they can pass a standardized test. Right. And then it wasn't education anymore. It was, it was just memorization. And that's it for this episode of About That. I hope it's given you something to think about. If you'd like to reach out to us, do send us an email on aboutthat.thepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us. I'm Margo Ortigas. Keep safe and stay healthy.